the politicians who thrive in the years ahead and the parties which thrive in the years ahead are the ones that are going to be offering a compelling narrative around the theme of security, both economic and cultural. It is not going to be either or. It is not going to be increase the salience of one, decrease the salience of the other. It is going to be a narrative that will speak very loudly and convincingly to voters' desire for a much greater degree of economic security, but also a strong desire for cultural security, for protection from an array of perceived threats that they feel. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Donald Trump has just been indicted and will stand trial in New York on charges most likely of having paid hush payments to Stormy Daniels. It would give me great pleasure to see Donald Trump behind bars. Trump has attacked the most fundamental aspects of America's political system, including the idea that free and fair elections should determine who gets to be in office. It is evidence that he has gone to the very limits of what is legally permissible in all kinds of circumstances for many years and well beyond the limits of what should be morally acceptable. And there's always some satisfaction in seeing the application of a noble and hard-won principle that all men are equal before the law that nobody is exempt from its reach. And yet, I saw the breaking news alert about Trump's indictment and had a sinking feeling. For the last months, the best case scenario was slowly coming into view. Trump's ability to command the attention of a public was Having. It looked at least plausible that he might lose his bid for the Republican nomination. He seemed determined to make a quixotic bid to run for presidency as an independent. I was starting to hope that he may leave American politics and American history as a triple loser. Now, all of the attention is back on Trump, just as he wants it to be. His rivals for the Republican nomination are already rallying around him, denouncing this upcoming trial. And as news about the likely indictment started to trickle out over the last weeks, Trump's standing in primary polls increased significantly. There's a very real possibility that Trump will ultimately be acquitted as John Edwards has been in the past in a somewhat similar case. But even if Trump goes to jail, he would be able to continue his political campaign. So we now face the nightmare scenario of Trump winning the Republican nomination, perhaps even winning the presidency while sitting in jail. And then, of course, there is the danger of political prosecutions as a form of revenge 
from the Republican side. There's something fundamentally unhealthy about the structure of the judicial system in the United States. Alvin Bragg, the district attorney for Manhattan, ran for office on the promise of going after Trump. He was elected in one of the most left-leaning electorates in the entire country. His re-election depends on the electorate's goodwill. All of that makes it very easy for Trump and his allies to claim, even if it is false, even if the case against him is watertight, that this is all just a political witch hunt. And of course, it will make it very tempting for some ambitious Republican in Mississippi or in Texas or somewhere else around the country to win election to high office by promising to go after Barack Obama or promising to go after Joe Biden. And he might just manage to persuade a grand jury to indict them, even if, unlike the case against Trump, he has no real legal legs to stand on. Trump may be the first American president in history to be indicted. I have a feeling that he won't be the last in my lifetime. I very much hope that I am wrong about all of this, and I may well be. This trial might finish Trump off. Republican donors and voters might decide that he is too weakened to be an effective candidate. There are some hopeful scenarios that might come out of this. But all of us who would love to see Trump come to his just desserts should remember what the most important goal is. And that is not the personal satisfaction we might feel if bad things happen to him. It is that his hold over the American political system weakens. My guest today is Matthew Goodwin. Matt is a professor of politics at University of Kent and the author of a number of interesting books, including most recently Values, Voice and Virtue, the New British Politics. We talked from a kind of comparative perspective about the basic realignments of Western politics over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. How did the left go from being mostly the voice of the overwhelmingly white working class to being in many ways the voice of upper middle class, college educated city dwellers? What paradoxes does that create for a left that tries to outcompete the right in the next decades? And we also talked a lot about the changes in British politics. How did the country's politics go from seemingly being relatively stable in a pretty centrist mold in the first half of the 2010s to the shock results of Brexit, to the premiership of Theresa May, to the rise of Boris Johnson, to the fall of Boris Johnson, and on the left from a deeply dysfunctional Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, to a more moderate Labour Party under the leadership of Keir Starmer that now looks likely 
to win a majority in parliament for the first time in many years. This is an episode that looks in some detail about the changes of political cleavages, both in Britain and the United States. I think it's really interesting as perspective on what makes electoral politics tick at this point in time. Matthew Goodwin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I've been trying to think through over the last years is just you know, a very significant change in the partisan alignment of the left and the right in you know most democracies in the West, and perhaps particularly Britain and the United States, the two countries where effectively two-party system forces the clearest distinction between them. Why is it that 40 or 50 years ago, if I wanted to know who votes for Labour and who votes for Conservatives, who votes for the Democrats and who votes for the Republicans, I could ask them straightforward questions about economics, about whether they want a bigger welfare state and you know more tax or whether they want a smaller welfare state and less tax. And that would give me a lot of information about who they vote for. And today it feels like the answer to those kinds of questions doesn't correlate very clearly with whether you vote for Labour or Conservatives or Democrats or Republicans. And no, somebody's social class doesn't seem to tell me that much about who they vote for. Certainly not in the sense that it did in the past, where if you were a working class person, you probably vote for a left-wing party. And if you were part of a sort of professional middle class, you probably voted for a right-wing party. What happened? Well, I think it's a great question. I think two things have essentially happened. I think one on the demand side of politics, I think we've seen the rise of what political scientists often call the cultural dimension in politics, particularly from the 1980s onwards. We've seen the rise of globalization, the rise of higher rates of migration and ethnic and demographic change, which has really pushed through new issues relating to identity and culture, which have become far more salient are now expressed in the emerging debates over so-called culture war topics, but are really questions that are much more about who are we rather than what do we have. But secondly, I think the supply side has changed as well. I think some parties have simply been much better than others at appealing across those traditional party lines. So if you look, for example, at Britain's Conservatives during the Brexit wars, if you look at Trump's Republicans, some Conservatives have been very in tune with this unfolding realignment. And they've been, I think, very adept at exploiting it and pulling it into politics. And some politicians, mainly on the left, but not exclusively on the left, have been, in my view, very bad at understanding how the tectonic shifts of politics have been changing. And they've remained very wedded to this view, uh, largely left over from the Industrial Revolution, that the foundation of politics is mainly about class and redistribution, and have been very reluctant to enter into these new debates about identity and culture. Now, that is beginning to change. You look at centre-left leaders like Keir Starmer, and you look at how they've changed their positioning on issues like Brexit, issues like patriotism, defence, look at how Joe Biden has positioned on some issues which are clearly designed to reconnect with working-class non-graduate voters that he's lost. You know, you're beginning to see changes now on the supply side on the left. But essentially, my kind of read of what's happened is politics has become two-dimensional. It's not just left and right, it's now left and right and liberal and conservative. And that's pushed us into this new space. And it's created lots of opportunities for new insurgents, green parties, populists. But it's also made it harder for the established parties to really respond 
to that. And of course, the one thing the UK and the US have in common is our electoral system. And that has, in some respects, forced our major parties to deal with these problems. It's forced them, I think, ultimately to change their strategies, to try and adapt to this new reality. And that, in my mind, is essentially the story of the last 50 to 75 years in politics in many Western democracies. We've left that first era of classic left and right politics, and we've entered into this new second era from the 1980s. And we're still, I think, still living in that. So one way of telling this story, and I take this from one of your recent articles, is to think about sort of two dilemmas, right? So the first dilemma was formulated by Adam Shavorsky, a very accomplished political scientist, when he pointed out that, you know, the Labour Party, the Democrats were trying to broaden their electoral tent from being mostly based in the working class to gaining more and more of a vote in the sort of professional managerial class. What was the nature of that dilemma? And why do you think that to understand what's going on today, we have to think about a kind of second dilemma? Yeah, well, essentially in the 1980s, I think a lot of academics and politicians and activists realized that the left was facing this very difficult dilemma between holding on to the traditional working class, which at that point, especially in democracies like Britain, was mainly white, and simultaneously reaching out to a more affluent, socially mobile, and increasingly university-educated middle class. And that tension really dominated left politics from the 1980s, I think, through to the 2010s. It's, it still remains with us today. And those two groups have really been pushed apart, not only by their economic experiences, but by the fact that they hold fundamentally different sets of cultural values. And we saw that in Britain, most noticeably during Brexit, when you had 150 Labour-held seats where voters decided to leave the European Union, much more culturally conservative than many of their middle-class, university-educated Labour MPs. And of course, you saw it with lots of areas that ended up flipping from Democrat to Republican in order to vote for Donald Trump. So that first dilemma, I think, still today remains very salient for left parties. But it's been joined by this second dilemma, whereby, you know, one of my frustrations with my left progressive colleagues is that historically, they've often argued that, look, we can basically circumvent that first dilemma by doubling down on this notion that demography is destiny, that basically, left parties can essentially not worry so much about the white working class because they are accumulating more and more support among groups that are on the rise. So the graduate class, minority ethnic voters, you know, urban voters. And you saw this in books like America Ascendant by Stanley Greenberg. You've seen it in arguments by prominent journalists. Jeremy Cliff and others have made this argument and talked about the Londonization of the country, that actually the future is with this newly ascendant emergent alliance of middle class graduates and minority voters. And perhaps most prominently in the United States, Ruth of Sarah was one of the leading voices arguing for this rising democratic electorate. But his thesis has often been overstated and misunderstood by democratic politicians and strategists. And in the pages of Persuasion and his podcast and in many other fora, including the Liberal Patriot, he has now become the principal critic of this set of assumptions. So I think, you know, Rui is a very interesting figure in both helping this thesis get a larger audience, but also pointing out the flaws of the sort of simplistic reading of it that ended up being so influential in the world of democratic politics in the United States. Yeah, and I should add that I'm a big fan of his work, and I also read The Liberal Patriot. I think it's a great read. So building on that, however, what essentially has happened now is 
is I think what that narrative lost sight of, firstly, it exaggerated, as you say, Asher, the pace of social and demographic change. These groups were not growing as quickly as many people thought they were. And secondly, it overstated the importance of geography. One of the reasons why Boris Johnson, for example, was able to win the largest majority for any conservative since the days of Margaret Thatcher was because many of the sort of very strong Remain voters who wanted Britain to stay in the European Union, who loathed everything about Boris Johnson, many of these university graduates and also minority voters concentrated in the same types of areas. They concentrated in the big cities and university towns and in a first-past-the-post system, right, you need to build that widespread support. You don't want this narrow, concentrated support. So the narrative also overlooked the importance of geography, but it also overlooked a third point, which I think is increasingly important. And I know that you know, you've written about this, others have written about this, that it really overlooked the growing divergence in the policy preferences of white graduate liberals on the one hand and minority working class voters on the other. And they do look at a lot of these increasingly salient cultural questions around identity, around gender, around history, around policing in a very, very different way. Not only in America, but also Britain. We can see that over the last five or six years, particularly since the Trump and Brexit revolts, as many academics have shown, white, affluent, middle-class graduates have basically doubled down on social liberalism and radical progressivism. And that's entirely understandable. Like, I completely understand that reaction. But what it's done is it's pushed them, and I would add the institutions they tend to dominate, political parties, media, culture, it's pushed them further away from many of these voters that are within the left's alliance today. So many minority voters, for example, Hispanic, Latino voters, we can see them drifting rightwards. And I would add in Britain, if you look at British Indians, on many questions relating to teaching gender identity theory in schools, rapid social change, high levels of migration, they don't share the relaxation or the support of their white graduate liberal counterparts who dominate the most influential positions within the labor movement. So the second dilemma here is really going to be difficult for left parties because it's also exacerbating their much weaker relationship with what remains of the white working class, which we should remember is still a very large voting block in its own right. White working class voters in England, for example, represent very large chunks of the vote in regions outside of London and the university towns. And if you look at all the survey data that we have, it shows pretty clearly that over the last 10 years, they feel that the Labour Party has routinely prioritised minority group interests over the wider majority. And, you know, Justin Guest and others have written really good books, books that have thrown light on this sense among voters that actually Labour elites are no longer really interested in the white working class, or even worse, they sort of look down on them with suspicion, if not contempt. And so this second dilemma is going to be really, really difficult for left parties, because the unifying narratives that they had around the economy in the past they're now facing this new challenge of trying to come up with a unifying narrative on culture. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially when conservatives are increasingly cottoning on to the fact, as they have with Scotland, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about in the fall of Nicola Sturgeon, is conservatives are now grasping the fact that actually on these cultural questions around, you know, should we allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender, actually there's a lot of opportunity for them to drive a wedge through the left's electorate in the same way that they did during the 1980s and the 1990s 
carving off working class voters and non-graduates, many of whom went to national populist parties and many of whom went to conservatives like Boris Johnson. So I think, you know, the second dilemma is going to be as problematic for left parties as the first dilemma really was. This is really useful as a conceptual framework, I think. I want to dwell a little bit on the first dilemma and then move on to the second one. So the first dilemma, as you put it, as Dravorsky put it, is that, you know, perhaps in the 50s or 60s or 70s, the working class was such an overwhelming majority of the population that the left could predominantly focus its electoral appeals on that social grouping. Of course, there was always intellectuals and so on who supported the left in Britain and the United States and other democratic countries. But they were perhaps intellectually important, perhaps important for the cultural life of the country, but not such an important electoral force. And then because of, I suppose, a number of changes in the structure of industry and the economy, the rapidly rising middle class, the rapidly rising number of people who were university educated in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, the left started to realize to build this winning electoral coalition, we really have to put together our traditional strength in Pennsylvania and the United States or in uh, what's called the Red Wall seats in the Northeast and elsewhere of England with these most affluent suburban areas or the sort of university seats in the United Kingdom or more and more constituencies within London and so on. But there was this tension between these groups. What was it that allowed some politicians to hold this coalition together? So, you know, there's two readings of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in particular. You could say, they put together a political program that solved the first dilemma. And so, you know, in a way, we have a model for how to do that. Now, I think the counterpoint to that might be that actually it was only possible in a very particular historical moment, that even though the first dilemma was formulated in the 1980s, it wasn't as strong in the 1980s because there was still such strong working-class feeling in some of those, you know, working-class towns in Pennsylvania, in some of those Red Wall seats in England's Northeast, that you could take for granted a certain set of constituencies and really go after the middle class vote. And that over time, that is eroded so that today you wouldn't be able to recreate that coalition. So what's your assessment here? I mean, do you think that effectively there was a set of political recipes which showed left-wing parties how to solve the first dilemma? Or do you think that those, in a way, cannibalized support for left parties among the working class in such a way that they were only feasible for a limited period of time? I think sequencing in politics is very, very important. Uh, I think timing is very important. And you look at Blair and Clinton, and in many ways, I think they were lucky. I think we have to remember they were a generation of centre-left leaders who were not just charismatic, not just you know, telegenic, not just incredibly competent, but they were also leading their parties, you know, before this cultural dimension in politics, the rise of security threats, 9-11, the rise of immigration as an issue, the rise of increasingly fraught debates over culture wars. I know you had some culture wars in America in the 80s and 90s, but nothing like you do today. And in some senses, they were lucky. Blair understood the dilemma. You know, there is a reason that he said that Labour would be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime, because what he was doing, even in the late 90s, was locking down the socially conservative authoritarian section of the Labour electorate. And he was saying to them, look, I get it on this emerging cultural axis. I'm going to speak to your concerns. And one thing, Yasha, lots of people in Britain and elsewhere overlook 
is Labour traditionalists, voters who are left on the economy and right on culture, were by far the biggest group within the Labour electorate until 2015. They massively outnumbered what we might call Labour cosmopolitans, left on the economy, left on culture. So this is not an insignificant problem that Blair had to overcome. In many of those working class areas, he was dealing with voters who were instinctively opposed to globalisation, immigration, Britain's relationship with the European Union. But what happened during New Labour, and I would argue what happened in America in some respects during the 2000s as well, is you basically began to see those relationships fragment. One of the early warning signs, for example, here in Britain was the rise of populism in 2004. You know, we had new parties breaking through. And by the time you got to the 2010s, you know, a lot of things that happened during the New Labour years really began to pick up momentum. So it wasn't that Blair solved the first dilemma. I personally think he was lucky in terms of timing. He was also shrewd in terms of doing what he could within that context to try and speak to it. But by the time you get into you know, the aftermath of Gordon Brown and the financial crisis, and then we have the refugee crisis in Europe, and then, of course, we have the Brexit referendum in 2016, by that time, what you're seeing is record numbers of working class voters, non-college educated voters, older voters, really moving away from Labour at a very quick speed. And this becomes the foundation of the political realignment. And I think Americans listening to this would see a lot of parallels. By the time you get to the Brexit referendum or the Trump election in late 2016, what you have are the three groups that basically provided the foundation for this new conservative assault. You had non-graduates that were moving rapidly away from the left. You had working class voters, especially white working class voters that were moving rapidly away from the left. And you had pensioners who had been born and raised in a time before globalization, before uh, large scale migration. And they too rapidly started moving from left to right. And this lastly brings us back to geography because the nature of that first dilemma for the left really was problematic because of geography and that those voters were much more efficiently distributed around the system than many of the voters who were dominating left parties, you know, the, the so-called Brahmin left, the graduates, the students, the minority voters. And as soon as workers, non-graduates and pensioners began to move, which they did very quickly, then it was essentially game over for parties like Labour because geographically they couldn't match that challenge. So if the first dilemma was the tension between the, you know, effectively white working class and the white middle class at a time when most voters simply were white, the second dilemma, as you pointed out, is between the increasingly culturally left positions of the Labour Party and of the Democratic Party and the much more culturally moderate or conservative positions of many of the non-white voters and non-white working class voters on whom they rely. Is there a similar, at least temporary solution to that as the third way posed to the first dilemma? So if politicians like Blair and Clinton were able to deal with the first dilemma, at least temporarily, by saying, well, we're going to be tough on crime, which appealed to the more traditional working class voters, but also tough on the causes of crime, which presumably appealed more to its more metropolitan, left-leaning, educated audience. Is there a way of taking a set of cultural stances today 
which clearly defend the more diverse societies we have, which clearly defend the rights and the interests of minority voters, which clearly point out some of the ways in which the right flouts those, but which also distances itself from the further reaches of the sort of progressive thought system, which is rejected by 80%, 90% of the population. Do you think the second dilemma in the United States, as well as in the United Kingdom, is unsolvable for left-wing parties? Or do you think that left-wing parties simply haven't been willing to solve them because they are so captured by the voice of you know, highly elite, highly educated progressives? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both, but I think ultimately the left has to solve this dilemma, otherwise it's not going to have a viable electorate going forwards. I mean, if it just becomes dependent upon declining numbers of non-white minority voters and white liberal graduates, that's not going to be a viable coalition under a first-past-the-post under a majoritarian system going forward. So it's going to have to solve the dilemma. And there are people obviously watching the American debate from the UK who say, well, you know, the answer to this is to increase the salience of economic issues and downplay the salience of cultural issues which are dividing these groups. Um, I'm less convinced that's a viable strategy because I spent a lot of my time in focus groups with voters and everybody's talking about these issues. And the narrative that you often hear that while well, nobody wants to talk about culture wars, they want to talk about the cost of living. I just personally don't think that's realistic or viable anymore. Parents do want to talk about what their kids are being taught, and lots of voters do want to talk about how the history of their country or their culture is being debated and reframed. So the genie's out the bottle on that. So what's the unifying cultural narrative. I think if you look at what has historically united, say, white graduates and minority voters, it has been this idea of a sort of linked fate between them. They've both focused on anti-discrimination and anti-racism, and not in an unnecessarily excessive way, but they've prioritized those goals. And I think that's been a bridge between them. The excess point is the critical point to me, because what you can clearly see in the polling and surveys, and I looked at Pew Research Center, which recently has done some really interesting polling on this in America, when you start reaching into areas like gender identity, children changing their gender identity or being taught more radical interpretations of gender identity theory, what you tend to find is over 60% of white graduate liberals are very supportive of these things, and about 30-35% of Hispanic, Latino African-American voters are supportive of those. So the more that the, let's just say, radical progressivism reaches into areas around the family and children, this second dilemma is going to be really exacerbated. And I'll give you a real world example, if I may, from Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon has just been forced to resign, partly, not exclusively, but partly because she tried to introduce a gender reform bill, which would allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without any medical advice and without any discussion, essentially, with medical authorities. And they only had to live in that gender for a much shorter period of time. When you polled voters about that, which I did, only 20% of voters were supportive of that particular policy. 80% were opposed to that policy. So 
my point is on many of these more radically progressive positions that go down very well among white graduate liberals who are cheering them on in the cities and the university towns, the vast majority of voters in many cases, especially large numbers of minority voters, British Indian, Sikh, Hindu voters, are looking at these measures with alarm, wondering whether the people who claim to speak on behalf of their interests really understand the emphasis they put uh, values related to their religion, you know, strong family, um, traditional social norms, so on and so forth. And this is going to become a big problem for the left. So I think the unifying narrative in my mind is to stay focused on anti-discrimination, anti-racism, to tone down and distance itself from the more excessive, and I would argue, contested positions around gender identity theory, and to try and also, if possible, increase the interaction between many of the white graduate liberals who are running left parties today, and many of the people who are voting for them. Because You know, there is a supply side issue here, Yasha, in that many people who are now within politics, if you look at, say, the House of Commons in Westminster, the largest single tribe of MPs in Westminster today are political careerists. They've never worked outside of politics. That did not used to be the case. We used to have lots of politicians who had real world life experiences, who were connected to the communities that they were representing, who had had two or three serious jobs before entering politics. But the data on MPs today tells a very different picture. So I think bolstering interaction between elected representatives and their voters is perhaps another thing that we could usefully do. But as I think you can tell from my answer, none of this is going to be easy for people on the left. Yeah, I agree very strongly with that problem of political education and formation. I've been thinking more and more about the nature of the U.S. political and social elite and its insulation from much of the population. And I think a similar, for perhaps somewhat attenuated story holds in Britain. One of the things that I find particularly striking in terms of the second dilemma is that, you know, many of my white progressive friends and acquaintances are just deeply instinctively convinced that, I hate this term, people of color, but people who are not white, are very socially progressive. And the reason for that is that they went to educational institutions and work in professional circles in which there is now a significant representation of different demographic groups. And those circles are very, very left-leaning. And so as a result, when they think of, well, how would black voters think about this? How would Latino voters think about this? They, in you know, very straightforward psychological shortcut of an availability heuristic, think of the actual friends they have who are black or Latino. And the actual friends they have who are black or Latino have extremely progressive social views like everybody else in their social circle, right? And so when you tell them, hey, you know, Matt Goodwin looked at these polls and he found that actually, you know, black voters or Latino voters or British Asians in the United Kingdom have much more conservative views on this, they reject this because it goes against the genuine sort of lived experience of what their acquaintances from those demographic groups believe. But it's sort of a strange artifact of the broader socioeconomic insulation of those elites. Yeah, I understand why people might think like that. I don't personally find that convincing. And to me, you know, the starting point in any discussion is always evidence and data. And I tend to put representative data ahead of lived experience. But that's my UK perspective. And I think if you look at the attitudes of many minority groups towards, you know, the sort of 
what we're seeing today, which is, in my view at least, the steady erosion of many of the traditional guardrails in society around national identity, religion, traditional conceptions of the family, you know, more traditional forms of teaching. I sit in many, many, many focus groups with minority voters who will tell me over and over again immigration rates are too high. The government is not controlling the borders. They don't want their kids at primary school, elementary school, high school being taught that they can change gender. A lot of this is contradictory to their religious beliefs. And these are also some of the fastest growing groups in the electorate. And this is why the second dilemma is so acute, I think, because, you know, people also underestimate just how profound the social and demographic changes in many Western democracies are going to be. And I know you've written about this in your book, The Great Experiment. And I think if you look at a country like Britain, by 2065, which, you know, in one level isn't actually that far away, we're going to see a complete transformation of the country's population, whereby the proportion of white British voters is going to decline somewhere around 40-45%. We're going to see a very sharp rise in the size of minority populations and in many areas minority groups will become majority groups and they'll take many of their values and their attitudes and beliefs with them. There's also compelling evidence to suggest that second and third generation voters from minority families are actually more conservative than their parents and the liberal drift that we often assume is at work in some communities either appears to be moving more slowly or doesn't appear to be happening at all. So this is why I think alongside the, I don't want to say radicalization of white graduate liberals, but the sort of so-called great awakening or, you know, the shift, whatever your favored term, but th- these changes that have happened within white graduate liberals and their attitudes, they've happened at the same time and they've pushed these voters much, much further away from this very large alliance of voters they could have. And it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, to close these gaps. Now, will conservatives target them? Will will populists target them? I suspect so. I think you're already beginning to see that. I looked at the midterm data in states like Florida, and you can see very large numbers, as you will know, of Hispanic, Latino and other minority groups moving to the Republicans. And I just finished reading a report looking at all midterm data going back 25, 30 years. And the trend is pretty consistent. I mean, yes, it's true. Large majorities of minority voters are still with the Democrats, but actually the trend is pretty visible. The numbers that are going to Republican are gradually increasing. And that, again, I think is a reminder that demography is definitely not destiny. And those who are in control of the Democrat Party and the apparatus of the party, I think are going to have to work much harder at familiarizing themselves with the people who have been voting for them. To what extent do you think it is possible to formulate a consensual message on some of those issues? So part of a problem, it seems to me at the moment, is that neither a side of a cultural divide in the United States, and perhaps the same is applicable in Britain, is able to speak consistently to the majority view on these cultural issues. And the majority view on many of these cultural issues actually strikes me as being quite reasonable. You might agree or disagree with some of the specifics, but Broadly speaking, it is that, of course, we need a lot of police on the streets and cops should not discriminate against people on the basis of their skin color. The real instances of terrible police violence are unacceptable. It is that we should be very upfront about the terrible aspects of American history and the terrible suffering 
involved in chattel slavery and the long-lasting effects of it, but we should also be proud of the founding principles of the United States and the great achievement of uh, statesmen from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln on trans issues. It's that we should, of course, treat trans people with dignity and respect and in most or all circumstances allow them to live in accordance with their gender identity. But that when it comes, for example, to sports competitions, you know, biological males have an unfair advantage when they have gone through male puberty and then compete against biological females. You know, do you think that in a similar way to our discussion earlier about the first dilemma, there is a possible solution to the second dilemma here that is in principle up for grabs to left-wing parties or right-wing parties, and that would be able to appeal to really broad cross-section of the population, including white university graduates who tend to skew liberal white working-class voters and non-white working-class voters? Or do you think that that is sort of too optimistic a reading of the data in terms of the scope for societal consensus here? I think that's broadly accurate. I mean, your description of the fault lines corresponds quite well with much of the data that I've seen and certainly the data that we have in the UK. There is a specific problem, I think, for the left, and I don't want to just bash progressives, but on a lot of the data that is out there, for example, the work by More in Common, among others, you know, it is quite striking how differently they see the world from pretty much every other group. I'll give you an example, you know, the average voter basically says, yep, I'm not particularly proud of what my country did in the past. Let's take Britain's empire as an example. Most people say not really proud of it, but it happened. We need to learn to live with it and move on. Progressives take the view that we cannot move on as a society unless we have addressed and dwelled on this historical injustice. You take an example like racism and the prominence of racism. Most people on balance do not think their society is very racist. They accept that there is discrimination. They accept that some minorities are discriminated against and they are firmly opposed to that. Radical progressives are instead completely convinced that their society is institutionally very racist and that that is one of the most pressing social problems facing the country. And I could go on in many other areas relating to you know, gender. At what age should we be introducing the notion of teaching kids about puberty blockers and transitioning? Uh, average voter says not until they're 16, 17 should we even be talking to them about these ideas Radical progressives tend to say, I'm happy to do that when they're still eight, nine, ten years of age. So they do consistently adopt this more radical view compared to other voters. So unless I think, and this is where I'm more pessimistic, unless you can convince and demonstrate to that very influential group within the left coalition that they are very adrift from the rest of the country on these issues, and they are making life much harder for centre-left social democratic parties, and they ultimately need to think about how they can forge a compromise and a consensus around these issues, it is going to be extremely difficult for centre-left parties to hold their coalitions together. Conservatives have a sort of similar tension, in a way, with the kind of populist right, but I think for different reasons it's less pronounced. Many of the populists and the kind of hard right agitators don't dominate the structures of conservative politics in a way that I think progressives do dominate the structures of left politics. 
that presumably is more true of the United Kingdom than is of the United States. In the US, it certainly does feel as though, both in terms of the media landscape and in particular in terms of this institutional control of the Republican Party, at this point, the sort of far-right populists have as much of a say as the far-left progressives do within the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that's definitely a fair point. But in my mind, I'm referring more to, say, the extra-conservative populists, the sort of outside conservative populists in, in, say, Britain, France, Germany, parts of Europe. You know, there is still a very clear distinction over here between what we might call, you know, mainstream conservatives and populists, although that distinction is becoming less clear by the day. And I accept America is somewhat different, although, you know, my reading of America actually... And, Perhaps I'm wrong on this, but I am feeling more optimistic, actually, that uh, it feels to me as though the mood is moving away from the Trumpian brand of Republican politics. Maybe your listeners will feel that, you know, the likes of Ron DeSantis and others are perhaps just Trump in another name. But it does feel to me as though the midterms and the polling doesn't look as good for Trump as it did a few years ago. But anyway, suffice to say that I think unless the progressive side can accept that it needs to forge some kind of compromise, which I also accept sounds somewhat naive, then it is going to be extremely difficult. So you've been subtly chomping at the bit to bring this discussion back to the United Kingdom. And I do want you to help our listeners who may be outside the UK understand the very strange political transformations in the country over the last 10 years. I mean, if you go back about 10 years at this point, you know, you've had the dominance of New Labour, a very successful series of elections for Tony Blair. Then, you know, the Conservative Party during that period experiments with very different political leaders with different kinds of political orientation. But the one that they ultimately coalesce around, who is able to win a couple of election victories for the Conservatives, is David Cameron who in a way is the kind of conservative flip side of Tony Blair, which is to say that he's a moderate conservative who's trying to put the more you know radical parts of his party in check. And it feels to many observers at the time as for you've reached this very stable equilibrium. And then for the next 10 years, British politics goes haywire with the Brexit referendum, which was famously meant to lance the boil by David Cameron, give people a vote and move on from a topic once and for all. But of course, the referendum does not go the way that Cameron imagined. You know, a couple of years in which Theresa May succeeds David Cameron and somehow tries to hold the program together, but without real support from a political party. The triumphal rise and victory of Boris Johnson, who looks as though he might be really setting a new mold for what successful leadership looks like in the country, as well he may have seized upon a sort of political secret for gaining these large majorities from the right. But then his very quick demise, and now a situation in which the Conservative Party polls at some of the worst results in the last century, and it at least looks at this point as though Labour is going to stomp back to victory. Talk us through this dizzying 10 years. What happened? Um, Yeah, it was a decade of extreme political volatility that has left a lot of people's heads spinning. But I think Americans can actually take a couple of lessons from what's happened here in Britain. Look, the fundamental story that I try and tell in my new book is that essentially left and right lost touch with a large chunk of the country. They lost touch with the values that were being held by many working class voters, many non-college educated voters, 
many pensioners and many voters outside of the cities and the university towns. And it was that disconnect that essentially allowed the rise of Firstly, Nigel Farage, who was a Donald Trump ally, a populist who campaigned to leave the European Union and lower immigration. And of course, this was interesting for Britain because, you know, historically, Britain was one of the few democracies in the world that was never supposed to have a successful populist movement. Britain, if you go back to the 1950s, academics used to say, was the quintessential civic culture. You know, we weren't like the Germans and the French and the Italians. We weren't emotional. We weren't divisive. We weren't polarized. Uh, we didn't like messianic leaders. You know, we were deferential. We were polite. We were consensual. But by the time you got to the 2010s, you know, this yawning chasm between the values of our leaders in Westminster and a large chunk of the country really made the rise of populism possible, which put enormous pressure on David Cameron, who was forced to call this referendum on Brexit. And Brexit, in turn, then kind of created this window of opportunity to have this full-blown political realignment, whereby conservatives like Republicans in the US had a huge opening to carve out new space among blue-collar workers in the Red Wall, which is our equivalent of your Rust Belt, and to basically eat their way through Northern England, you know, winning over voters who had only ever voted for the Labour Party, and After some back and forth, essentially, Boris Johnson delivered on that new electorate and he promised them that he'd get Brexit done, that he'd lower immigration and that he'd reform the economy so it was less dependent on London. And his reward was the biggest majority since the days of Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, if you're being sympathetic to Boris Johnson, you'd say... And then along came COVID and his premiership was blown apart. If you're a critic of Boris Johnson, you'd say, well, then he proved himself to be completely unfit for high office. And he proceeded to have a number of parties during COVID and ended up presiding over various party scandals and was rapidly pushed out by conservative MPs who any historian will tell you are the most ruthless politicians in the world. The moment they sense they're about to lose power, they will rapidly push out the leader, as Winston Churchill himself discovered. And so it's left us where we are today, Yasha, which is a realignment that is only halfway done, a Labour Party that has sensed its opportunity to get back in the game. And this is where there are parallels with the Democrats. What has Keir Starmer, the new leader of the Labour Party, done? Well, he's accepted the Brexit vote. He's talked about the need to invest in Britain to buy in Britain, to spend more money on areas outside of London, to tackle inequality, to invest in defence and security. Yes, there is a tension between where he is and the progressive wing of the party, which is still calling for things that alienate most voters. But he now has a real opening. And interestingly, as we talk against the backdrop of the fall of Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, Keir Starmer now has an even bigger opportunity because the more ground that Labour are now going to claw back in Scotland makes it much easier for them to win an overall majority at the next election. So I suspect that if Americans are interested in a lesson for how a centre-left party can get back on its feet, can push back against Conservatives can begin to appeal to the working class voters they lost and can reposition themselves for a renewed period in power, 
The Labour Party hasn't got everything right, but it's certainly got a lot of things right, which is why we're currently headed for uh, the first Labour majority government since the era of Tony Blair, who was in fact the last Labour leader to win a majority in 2005. So let's dig down into two big personalities here, Boris Johnson and then subsequently Keir Starmer. When Johnson won this huge parliamentary majority, it did seem as though he had hit upon a kind of political recipe, which is to be robustly centre-right on culture without being bigoted, without scaring off minority voters, without being extreme in the kind of way that Donald Trump was, and moving the party firmly into the centre or even the centre-left on the economy, promising big investments in the poorer parts of the country and so on. As you outlined, that promise didn't work out. But I think there's an important question here about, did it not work out, whether it is because of Johnson's deep personal failings or because of unlucky timing of the pandemic, but for reasons that are effectively contingent? Or did it not work out because actually in practice, it is impossible to keep together the kind of political coalition that conservatives had built? We talked a bunch about the left-wing version of these different dilemmas of trying to keep these very different electorates together, you know, is there a right-wing version of this dilemma where, you know, in an electoral campaign, you can manage to appeal both to older people in the home counties, the sort of affluent parts of Britain who are quite traditional and who are sort of very much middle class or upper middle class, as well as these, you know, disgruntled working class voters who have lost faith in the left. But then once it comes to governing, the interests of those two groups are just too separate. Is that part of what happened to Johnson? Or do you think that a, a future conservative politician could, you know, emulate Johnson's electoral appeal, combine it with more competence, perhaps a little bit of better luck in terms of the kind of challenges that face the country at that time and win big stable majorities? Well, I think you've got your finger on the pulse there, actually. I think essentially, to understand how the Conservatives lost this realignment, you have to understand Boris Johnson. He was always misunderstood. People who compared him to Donald Trump never understood who he really was. Boris Johnson at heart is a liberal. He's very relaxed about multiculturalism, immigration. He campaigned for Brexit, but not to do with reasons around migration. He comes from a tradition within the Conservative Party that is really passionate about free trade, is very sceptical about anything that looks like protectionism or bureaucracy. And he ultimately, deep down, if you really want to understand Boris Johnson, you have to understand, I think, that he just wants to be liked. I mean, he wants to be liked by everybody. You know, that's why he campaigned so hard when he was mayor of London. Not an easy thing, you know, for a conservative to win London twice, but he did it. And then when he became prime minister, you know, he found himself in a very awkward position because he won this massive majority by winning over the largest number of working class voters since the days of Margaret Thatcher and the Falklands War. So now he realized he had to sort of deliver to these voters, but they were looking for a lot of things that I think instinctively Boris Johnson and many other liberal conservatives who surrounded him didn't want to deliver. I think the US Republicans, to be blunt, have a much stronger understanding of who's voting for them than many of the British Tories because they then proceeded to basically prioritize many things 
that their new post-Brexit voters didn't want. They prioritised the deregulation of financial services. The first thing Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss tried to do was to make life easier for cities and financial services in London. He liberalised the immigration policy regime in a way that even David Cameron didn't do. So yes, we stopped migration from Europe. So People essentially couldn't come to the UK from the European Union, but Boris Johnson liberalised immigration from many other countries around the world, which has now created record levels of migration into the UK. We had 1.1 million visas issued last year. That was mainly a legacy of Boris Johnson. And his party never really grasped the need to genuinely improve regions outside of London. So Boris Johnson's signature policy, not dissimilar to Joe Biden's, was levelling up the country, was investing through infrastructure in regions in northern England. But that policy was never seriously fleshed out. Many Conservative MPs in the traditional South were very upset with all this money going to these northern working class voters. And it was another example of how, you know, the problem here was a supply side problem. Conservative elites were never really comfortable with embracing this political realignment. And so you then begin to see all the voters that came to them in 2019 begin to move away, alienated not just by these policy choices, but by Boris Johnson's decision to have a number of parties in Downing Street during COVID. And then you get the really just crazy moment in British politics, which I'm sure your listeners will remember, which was this bizarre premiership of Liz Truss, which happened at the end of last summer, the shortest prime minister in British history. Liz Truss comes along as a newly appointed successor to Boris Johnson and proceeds to introduce a sort of new right agenda, more deregulation, pushing for a free trade agreement with countries like India, very comfortable with immigration, very comfortable with removing caps on bankers' bonuses, basically trying to build this Davos on Thames economy, which if you're working class and you're non-graduate and you're culturally conservative, is the very opposite of what you thought you were getting when you voted for Brexit in the first place. So this tension then completely imploded, which leads us where we are today with the Conservatives now on 21% of the vote, which is a historic low. I mean, I can't begin to explain how disastrous the Conservative Party has become in the polls. We've never seen numbers like this before. And Rishi Sunak, who has become the new leader charged with sort of turning around the Titanic, is now scrabbling around trying to find ways to put back together this post-Brexit coalition like Humpty Dumpty in a way that is not going to be easy on any level at all. So fundamentally, for Americans, why does this matter? This matters because it really showcases what happens when a political party inherits a realignment and it doesn't really understand what to do with it, how to hold it, how to expand it, and how to turn it into a coherent policy agenda. And that is basically what happened to the Boris Johnson Conservative Party. So let's talk finally about Keir Starmer. You know, Starmer is interesting in two ways. First is that he was a ally of Jeremy Corbyn's, a very far left leader of the Labour Party, far to the left of Bernie Sanders in the United States in a number of key respects, including international relations. He was in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. He was a very loyal cabinet minister, very, very rarely criticizing him in public or, so far as I can tell, in private. 
But that put him in a position to win the leadership of the Labour Party, not as the anti-Corbyn candidate, but as the non-Corbyn candidate. There was a clear pro-Corbyn candidate in the leadership election. And Starmer effectively refused to get drawn on Corbyn at that time, saying that, you know, he was going to set up the Labour Party in his own image, but not dwelling on criticisms of Corbyn, which may, I always think, be a good model for how the Republican Party might be able to move on from Trump. So that's a different issue. He then, once he was leader of the Labour Party, seized on political opportunities to isolate Corbyn very clearly from the party, effectively force him to resign the Labour whip which is to say no longer really sit on the Labour benches because of further anti-Semitic comments that Corbyn made. And for a long time, people's assessment of Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party seemed pretty mixed, which is to say that he was moderating the party, he was making it a sort of sensible party that nobody was afraid of, but he didn't seem to have that much charisma and he didn't seem to have that much of a clear political vision. And yet he is now riding high in the polls in a nearly unprecedented way. And he does look likely to be the next prime minister. Have people underestimated the coherence of Starmer's project for the last years? Is there a recipe to success for left-wing parties to be found in Keir Starmer's labor? Or is he, to a large extent, the beneficiary of you know the dissolution of the Conservatives and the Conservatives' complete failure to understand the nature of a realignment that had put them in power? I think, again, it's a bit of everything. The old saying in British politics is that opposition parties don't win elections, governments lose them. And there is a lot of that going on at the moment. The incumbent Conservative government has made so many mistakes, many unforced errors, that life has been very easy for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. But it is also true that he has brought to the Labour Party two things that voters routinely prioritise around the world. One is ideological moderation. He has moderated the party's positions. He has dealt with the issue of anti-Semitism that plagued Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. He has repositioned the party so it's closer to the median voter on many of these issues that we discussed, such as Brexit, security, wanting to believe in the country they live in, not wanting to hear all the time about all the things that are wrong with Britain. And he's, you know, flexed his patriotic muscles and that has helped. But I think at the same time, you know, anyone who works within or around the Labour Party will also tell you that things are still vulnerable. Things are still uneasy. That There are some known unknowns, to use a cliche, that hang over Keir Starmer. One is he doesn't have the charisma of Tony Blair or Bill Clinton, for example. His leadership ratings have improved, but they're still very flat. I sit in focus groups with lots of voters who sometimes tell me they don't really know who Keir Starmer is, which is quite remarkable and a reminder of the extent to which many voters aren't tuning into politics to the extent that we do. He has a problem on his left flank. Many Corbyn supporters are now absolutely openly hostile towards Starmer and his leadership. That may be pointing to a problem with turnout and mobilisation at the next election. And the Labour brand, because of the issues we've discussed, I think still has two core problems. One is, yes, they are now seen as being better on the economy, but there is still a suspicion among voters that Labour is not good in a crisis and is not 
a sound manager of economic issues. Starmer has to deal with that. And he is dealing with that, but he needs to maintain that clear line. And the second is immigration. Labour is still not trusted on the immigration question, which is the third top issue for voters still. It's also the second top issue for 2019 Conservatives. Many people still associate Labour with what they perceive as a immigration crisis in the 2000s and the 2010s. So he has to find his version, Yasha, of tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. He has to find his version of how Tony Blair locked down those Labour traditionalists by appealing to their instinctive patriotism and their instinctive desire for a strong national community with strong borders. And that will ruffle feathers within the Labour Party. But if he is to win a majority, he's going to have to win back working class voters in England. I mean, here's just one statistic, which I find absolutely mind boggling, but it's true. The Labour Party, the main opposition party, has still not won the popular vote in non-London England since 2001. In other words, for more than 20 years, once you take away the capital city, the Labour Party has not won the popular vote among non-London England. So all those workers, non-graduates, pensioners and so on, the Labour Party still has a structural problem with them. It's still grappling with the first dilemma. It hasn't yet solved that riddle. It's going some way to doing so, but it needs to really maintain this course it's on and turn up the volume on what its instrumental positive message is for those voters. And if he does that, you know, he's going to comfortably win the next election. If he doesn't, I really don't know where the Labour Party go after that, because it's not difficult to see how Labour implodes internally again, if he doesn't deliver a victory in 24. Let's, for the final question, widen the angle again. One of the themes in this conversation is the way in which political leads and party leads often fail to understand the reasons for their own success and, and end up screwing it up. You know, what is the basic nature of the partisan divide or the social divide in the United Kingdom, the United States in the middle of the 2020s? And what's it going to look like for the next 10 or 15 years? What is you know, the basic dividing line that's going to be deciding our elections? And what about that do you think that, you know, smart people who follow politics tend to get the most wrong? It's a big question. But I think as I alluded to earlier on, I think, you know, the politicians who thrive in the years ahead and the parties which thrive in the years ahead are the ones that are going to be offering a compelling narrative around the theme of security, both economic and cultural. It is not going to be either or. It is not going to be increase the salience of one, decrease the salience of the other. It is going to be a narrative that will speak very loudly and convincingly to voters' desire for a much greater degree of economic security amid all of the things that we're seeing at the moment, but also a strong desire for cultural security, for protection from an array of perceived threats that they feel. And, you know, the idea that we were entering into this sort of before the pandemic, the kind of, you know, roaring 20s and the good times has been rapidly, I think, replaced by a very threatening environment for voters where they are rapidly falling down the hierarchy of needs and they are focusing very squarely and clearly on physical security, 
economic security and also those guardrails that they look to as a source of security, you know, family, identity, community, all of those things that historically they've looked to for that. And politicians who grasp that fact, and this is why we often talk about the formula of leaning a little bit left on economic issues, leaning a little bit right on cultural issues, is a bit simplistic, but you can see it applied. I mean, the reason Keir Starmer in Britain is doing well is because basically he's sort of beginning to do that. If you look at why Biden has perhaps outperformed some expectations, I mean, I can see some pretty clear appeals to workers and non-graduates around things like infrastructure and so on. I mean, he's not gone as far, certainly, as Starmer has. If you look at Italy, I can see some similar things there too. But I think it is going to be this theme of security that is going to really permeate both economic and cultural. It's going to be, you know, 24, both for the UK and the US. It's an enormous year politically, and it's going to have all kinds of interesting implications for you know those of us who watch politics and study it. And I think there's going to be some really interesting comparisons between the Democrats and Labour and the Republicans and the Conservatives. And those parties are both going through very similar strategic challenges, and they are producing, in some cases, similar answers, but in others, very, very different ones. And I think that those elections are going to give us some very interesting answers to these questions. Matt Goodwin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, Please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.